text this morning. It is from Judges chapter 10, and it is 6 through 18. And if you have the ESV, there's a little title at the top that says, Further Disobedience and Oppression. So that gives us a pretty good idea of what's about to happen. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all of the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go out, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress." And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let me pray, if you don't mind. Father, we're very grateful that we can be here. And Lord, I pray that you would please help me to preach the truth this morning as I ought. Lord, help me to rightly handle this word of truth. Father, I pray that you would please... Use your word in our hearts this morning to bring about change. Lord, teach us what true, real repentance is, Lord, so that we can know the right from the wrong, the true from the false, and so that we can have something really of value when we come to you in repentance and faith. It is with the real thing so that we experience the real thing from you, Lord, true forgiveness, true peace, just as we sang about. And I pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. I was, I was cutting grass, and I was by the part that's right by the road, the busy road. And so it's pretty common in that area to find trash in the yard because it's right by where people throw things out or just things blow along the road, and then they find their resting place in the grass, and so it's not uncommon for me to have to stop occasionally and pick up something and then keep going, because if you've ever run over a piece of trash with the lawnmower, you know it then turns into 10,000 pieces of trash. 
And so I was motivated to stop and pick up what this was. And when I got closer to it, I got a little excited because I found this in my grass. Now, my reaction was like, your reaction, Brandy. I'm going to actually show this to Brandy and see what she thinks about it. My reaction was like hers. I thought, oh my goodness, I've never found anything like this. Look at that. What do you think about it? It looks real. Touch it, examine it a bit better. She thinks it's real. It's not real. Check. It is cut wrong. Look at the colors. The colors are off slightly. Feel it. It's counterfeit money. It's not, it's not real money after all. And so I was, first of all, I was elated because I've never found more than a $5 bill. As you know, it's kind of like winning the lottery when you're walking through a par- parking lot and you find a quarter. You feel like, wow, this is amazing. And then you find a dollar. And then once I found $5, real money, And so when I found that, I was really excited. But I've held enough money and I've seen enough real money in my life that I immediately, quicker than Brandy, I could tell this isn't real. It it tipped me off, first of all, by the colors and then by the feel. I could just tell this wasn't real. So something that I thought originally had worth, I came to realize was actually worthless. It was false. It's not true. And so therefore, it it had no real value. I've titled the message this morning, True and False Repentance. Because what I want to show you in our text this morning is that even repentance can have the appearance of being real. But then, upon further investigation, we can actually find out whether or not Repentance is real, just like you can find out, and we can pass that around later if you want to see what a counterfeit bill looks like if you've never actually seen one. Uh, That's one of three I've actually ever held in my life. Just uh, about three or four years ago, I came across two other bills someone tried to buy something with when I was working in retail. But you'll see, I think, upon examination, that it's false. And the truth is, the more you're around the real thing, the easier it is to detect whether it's real or not. So the more you actually know about the word of God, you'll know whether or not your repentance is actually real or not. Because repentance, just like money, will have some things that are true about it that demonstrate its reality or not. Well, under verses one through five, we didn't actually cover those, but if you look in your Bible in Judges chapter 10, what we we find there is just a quick description of two judges, Tola and Jair, that are briefly mentioned. And we learn that Israel experienced a total of 45 years of peace and protection when Tola and Jair were judges, if you combine the two of them together. A total of 45 years. Years And from our previous examples in the book of Judges, we could conclude that the fact that they had protection and they had peace was the result of, of these two judges being faithful. 
They must have been faithful to the Lord or else he would not have given them peace for a combined 45 years. For the people of Israel, the presence of the judge acted sort of like how a dam works. You know how dams work? A dam contains and it it holds back a, a, a large, large volume of Water And so the presence of these men acted like that. These, these men withheld the, the sinful desires that these people were, were so prone to have. When a judge was there, he, he, he held back their sinful tendencies, as it were. And so the people of Israel, the, uh, the presence of the judge there, did that. And I say that because, what does verse 6 say? We're going to see that the very next verse after reading about the death of of the second judge, Jair, essentially after the dam broke, we then see what what burst forth from the people of Israel. And what is it that burst forth from the people of Israel? Look at verse six. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So as soon as this judge dies, as soon as he's not there as the withholding presence as the, as the presence to say, this is wrong, we shouldn't do that. As soon as he's gone, what do we see? People of Israel act like they want to act. We see what's really there bursts forth. That verse should sound familiar to us, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Why do I say that? Well, because throughout this book, this keeps getting repeated over and over and over again. There's actually one, two, three, four, five times before this when the same phrase was said. Back in Judges 2.11, it says, again, the people of Israel, no, I'm sorry, it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Then we learn that God uh, raises up Othniel. And it says, before Othniel comes on the scene, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Othniel comes, saves the people. There's a time of peace. And they fall right back into their sins. After Othniel dies, what do we read about in Judges 3.12? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's when the Lord raised up Ehud. And then what do we read in Judges 4, 1? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of, of the Lord after Ehud died. I just keep going back into this again and again. Then Deborah and Barak come along. And then after they're gone, what do we read about in Judges 6, 1? And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we keep getting this happening again and again and again. This is the sin cycle that we spoke about. The sin cycle that I've shown you again and, and again often so we find in the book of Judges. Remember, the book of Judges is a very sad time. And so, Jair dies right after Tola also served and kept the people in a time of peace and protection. And then we get in verse 6, the people of Israel again do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And then what happens in verse 7? So look at verse 7, because it's God's reaction because verse 6 says and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him anytime you go after something else that's not God you're forsaking God 
you have to turn away from him to go after something that's not him. And that's just how sin is. That's how sin always is. That's how disobedience always is. Disobedience is the opposite of obedience. And so you're going away from faithfulness when you go after faithlessness. And so that's what we see in the people of Israel here. They forsook the Lord, didn't serve him. Verse seven, what's his response? And also, pay attention to this. Did you, did you see this list? Did you see this list of all the different gods they served in verse six? Before we go on to verse seven, let me just point this out. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, five different people groups that are all around them they go after each one of their gods. That's how given their hearts were to idolatry. It wasn't enough just to have this one. We want that one too. Oh, and theirs too. Oh, and theirs too. Oh, and look, theirs is shiny and looks powerful. Did you know that your flesh and its desire for sin is insatiable? Children, that just means it can't be satisfied. It's never satisfied with just a little. If you're struggling with a certain sin right now, whatever it may be, let's say it's lust, pornography, greed, gossip, whatever it might be, more than likely you're feeding it in some way. Because what you feed grows And when you feed it, it wants more. Your appetite for sin, this flesh that you have, this appetite is insatiable. You feed it, it's gonna want more. The people of Israel served one God, false God, then they wanted the other one. And the other one and the other one, five different nations. Look how their sin had piled up. Verse seven, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. The Lord disciplines us on purpose when we sin. We know that that's for the purpose of bringing us back. Godly sorrow produces repentance, is what the word of God says. It's meant to bring us back to him. We're told specifically here in Scripture that this was not just some coincidence that the people happened to come over and oppress them. The people just so happened to be stronger than them. No, it was the Lord raising them up on purpose to come in and oppress his people. Why? Because God just wants to be up in heaven and say, good, ugh. No, to get them to come back. And he knows his people and he knows us well enough that he knows we're such dolts that we, for some reason, only respond to pain, it seems. I've thought that before. I've even, I remember when I was a young Christian after I'd been in the faith for a few years, I thought, Lord, I'm sorry that you have to essentially put my face in the mud before I'll look up and cry out. 
I wish I wasn't like that. I wish people weren't like that. I wish we just loved you for you and came to you just because you're so awesome. Instead of saying, wow, my life is really horrible. Look what a horrible, wretched sinner I am and look at these horrible circumstances. It seems that we repent better (laughs) under those things. And unfortunately, the Lord knows that about us as well. And the Lord disciplines us because he loves us, just like you parents in here. You don't just let your children run around doing anything the heck they want to do. No, you say, I'm going to curtail that rebellion because I love you. I don't want you to grow up and be a bigger version of you <laughs> right now. Vody Bauckham says the reason why God gives us children in the form of babies is because if they were bigger than that and their anger was bigger as they were babies, they'd, they'd kill us is what he said. It gives us small versions. <laughs> and so the people of Israel were sold into these oppressors' hands on purpose. The Lord did it. It was not a coincidence. The Lord did it. And it says, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. It was harsh the first year, apparently. It must have been more harsh than the others that followed because we're told in the very next verse, for 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan. For some reason, it emphasizes this first year as being especially bad. And the people of Israel are distressed, we learn at the end of verse 9. So in verse 10, what happens at the end of this 18 years of their distress when it's so bad? And I wonder why it took them this long even. It says, the people of Israel, in verse 10, cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. So now, now they're crying out to God. I wonder if during those 18 years, they cried out to the Baals first and then nothing happened. Kind of like Elijah on Mount Carmel when he says, let's have a contest. Let's build an altar, put a sacrifice up there and whoever, whichever of our gods answers by fire, that God is God. I'll let you go first, Stephen. Have fun. And they dance around and they cut themselves for so long and nothing happens so much so that even Elijah starts to mock them and says, hey, cry louder. Maybe he's asleep. Cry louder in the vernacular, he says. Maybe he's relieving himself. He's using the bathroom. Keep at it. Surely he'll answer you. And nothing happens. And as soon as Elijah opens his mouth, fire comes down from heaven. It seems to me that maybe these people went to the bells first and got nothing because of what God's going to say to them later on. Doesn't it hurt you when you're someone's plan B or plan C? And they go to other things first. I mean, imagine if, imagine if uh, you were back in high school and a girl or a guy asks you to do the prom or something like that, and then you learn, oh, 
I wasn't your first choice. Oh, I was, oh, I was actually your third choice? You went to Bobby first and he said no. Then you went to Stephen and he said no. And so then you said, well, I'll, I guess I'll ask Cohen. You don't really feel so good, do you? You don't really feel like special anymore because you weren't plan A, you weren't even plan B. There were five other gods that they were serving. Something tells me they cried out to them first for those 18 years and they said, you know what, this isn't working. Why don't we go back to Jehovah? Why don't we go back to Yahweh? Because it says here in verse 10, we have sinned against you. And then it says why they know they've sinned against him because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. They knew this was wrong the whole time is what that phrase tells us. We've sinned. How do you know you've sinned, people of Israel? Because we've forsaken our God and served the Baals. They knew it was wrong to forsake God, but they thought, we're going to try it anyway. Because we're looking at these other Baals, these gods of these other nations around us, you know, and we can actually see them. And they're made of gold. And they're made of silver and shiny things. And they carry them around and they parade them around. We don't have anything like that. Our God is invisible. We can't even go into the tabernacle and see the shiny ark. We're not even allowed to do that. We want something we can see and touch. We want something tangible right now. That's what we want. They have that. That's what we want. We want something other than what God has prescribed for us. And isn't that the heart of all of our sin? I know what your word says, but I want something different, something I want. And we can be sure we're falling into a dangerous place whenever we do that. And so the people acknowledge we've sinned because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And Lord says to his people, not convinced of their repentance. And I'll, I'll show you why here in a moment. I believe this first statement was false repentance. False. And I'll make my case for that here in a moment. The Lord says to them, don't know how, possibly through a prophet, maybe an audible voice, we don't know. The Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians? Let's have a bit of a history lesson here. Did I not save you from, number one, the Egyptians, number two, the Amorites, number three, the Ammonites, number four, the Philistines, number five, the Sidonians, number six, the Amalekites, and then also the Mayanites, Seven other nations, haven't I already delivered you from all of them? Wasn't it me that saved you from all of them, all the ones who oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet, you've forsaken me and served other gods. This is really interesting. He reminds them, let's talk about, let's talk about all the times you've done this. Now, granted, granted. These people standing there at that moment weren't the ones that did all of these atrocities. However, they're falling into the same atrocities that these people did. He's giving a history of all the book of Judges so far, essentially. But the fact that these people had not learned 
the lesson means, number one, their hearts are still sinful, of course. They are culpable for their own actions, absolutely. But I think this also shows a bit of a breakdown of what the parents were supposed to be doing. Mom and dad should have said, remember what grandfather told us. Remember when he was oppressed under the, let's just pick one, under the Amorites. Remember when he forsook the God of Israel? Yes, we remember. What did mommy told you we should do then? We should obey the Lord's voice, absolutely. And when we're tempted to go after other gods, what should we remember? You shall have no other gods before me. Very good, children, just like we've gone over. Mom and dad should have been reminding the people, let's not fall into this again, children. Let's not be like the generation of what grandfather went through. But we see them falling into this again. And God reminds them, I've, you've already gone after other gods here and I delivered you. Then your people went after these gods and I delivered you. Then your people went after these gods and I delivered you. And you keep going after all these gods and I keep delivering you again and again. And I saved you out of their hand. Verse 13, yet you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. It's as if God was saying, you know what, enough's enough. We're not going to keep playing this game. You're not learning. Therefore, I won't save you. I think why he said this right here is because he could see through their words. He could see that their repentance was false. He examined their hearts just like I examined that bill. I looked at it. I felt it. I said, this is cut slightly differently from a regular bill. This is colored differently from a regular bill. And this feels much different from a regular bill. But just in case I'm wrong on all those places, let me hold it up to the light. Sure enough, there's no watermark either. This is false. Therefore, number one, my heart was broken because I didn't have $20. But I realized this has no value to it. Their repentance had no value. And God said, I'm not going to save you. God will not respond to us with salvation when our hearts aren't truly desiring to turn away from our sin. He won't. If you just want to be rescued out of your crummy circumstances, that's not the same as wanting to be delivered from your sin. I remember as a teenager once being under the influence of substances. And a friend of mine said, hey, let's get on the motorcycle and drive crazy. And I jumped on the back while he was on there under the influence, both of us, of substances. And he was driving so erratically, I started praying. And I said, Lord, please rescue me. Please don't let me die. I don't remember if I made any bargains like, and I'll serve you. Well, guess what? We didn't die. I don't know if you were wondering, if you were on the edge of your seats thinking, did you die? We were safe. We didn't even wreck or anything. But guess what changed in Cohen Ezel's heart? 
nothing. You know why? Because I wasn't sorry for my sin. I just didn't want to die. And that's two different things, isn't it? My crying out to God wasn't out of being broken for my wickedness. I wasn't thinking, Lord, I know I'm in a sinful state right now. I'm doing these things that I shouldn't be doing with people who I shouldn't be doing it with, and I know that that breaks your heart, and I've transgressed your laws. Will you please save me? I trust that Jesus Christ took the punishment for me. Please rescue me from my wickedness. No, it was just, I'm on the back of a very fast motorcycle, and I'm scared I might die. Will you please help me out right now? I'd appreciate it. You're nice, right? And that's different from repentance, isn't it? It is. If someone spits in your face daily and then says, can I have $100? No, I don't, I don't think so. Why would I do that? Well, because you've got the ability to give me $100, duh. Yeah, I don't think I'm gonna do that today. But it would be very different if the person came to you with true repentance over his or her wickedness for treating you in such despicable ways and then formed a friendship with you and showed himself to be trustworthy. Of course, then things are different, right? I think this is why the Lord's saying, I'm not going to save you. He says this, here's a plan. Why don't you do this instead? Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Why don't you go to all those things that you love so dearly? Let me know how that works out for you. You've put so much time, love, and devotion into serving them and forsaking me. Go to them. Their answer was probably in their hearts, Well, we have, and it didn't work. So now you're our plan B, or actually our plan C. Actually, we went to all five of the other ones first, and it didn't work. So now we're coming to you. And I I think that's again why God was thinking, no, I'm I'm not feeling it today, because I'm not sensing any true repentance. Just like you would be, unwilling to go to the prom with that individual once you learned you were the sixth choice. Not feeling it. Not feeling the love here. Verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we've sinned, like they said before, do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And then look at verse 16. This is how I know in verse 16 they're more serious about their repentance now. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. You know what this means? It means the foreign gods had not been put away yet with the first sentence of please help us, please save us. They still had the foreign gods. They hadn't put them away yet. Do you see what that, I mean, it says then they put away the foreign gods. But up here in verse 10, We've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals, but they still had the Baals. They still had them. That's why God knew, I am not going to save you 
because you've not put away your sin. And that's what real repentance looks like. It's the putting away of sin. Let's do a walk through history here. In the year 150 AD, an early church father, Clement of Alexandria is his name, he wrote this about repentance. Again, this is almost 2,000 years ago. This would have been just 100 years, essentially, after Jesus walked on the earth. He says, let us not merely call him Lord. I'm sorry, let me start over. Let us not merely call him Lord, for that will not save us. For he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved, but he who does what's right. Thus, brothers, let us acknowledge him by our actions. This world and the world to come are two enemies. This one means adultery, corruption, and deceit, while the other gives them up. We cannot then be friends of both. To get the one, you must give up the other. Repentance is the giving up of the things that the Lord says to be sin. That's what real repentance looks like, is the giving up of the things that the Lord says to be sin. These people put away the bales. They got rid of them. They showed then they were a bit more serious about their repentance. They were showing it might be real now. Why? Because they were actually putting away the bales. True repentance is an acknowledgement that the Lord's words are true and that my sinful actions are wrong. That's what real repentance looks like. You're acknowledging the Lord's words are truth and that therefore your actions that are contrary to it are wrong. Let's go a little bit further in church History. Let's go to the 1500s. Martin Luther in the year 1517, you might recall in that year, that was the year that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle door at Wittenberg. I don't know if I said that right. We'll have to consult our German friend over here. Those 95 things were basically 95 complaints that he was lobbying at the church at that time. Listen to the first one. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying, repent, meant the whole life of the faithful to be an act of repentance. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ in saying repent meant the whole life of the faithful to be an act of repentance. What does that mean? It means that you don't just repent once to get in the club. You are always repenting because you know how sinful your sin truly is. You're not done with your sin when you come into the faith. Like I said before, it doesn't mean that you're sinless, but it does mean that you sin less. Why? Because you now have a new nature that hates sin. And so when Jesus said repent, it means that the whole life of the faithful is to be an act of repentance. Martin Luther follows up with this one in one of the other theses. He says, yea, he does not mean interior repentance only. Nay, interior repentance is void if it does not produce different kinds of mortification of the flesh. Interior repentance is void if it does not produce different kinds of mortification of the flesh. What does that mean? We don't really talk like that much more. In other words, repentance will produce actions that show 
the sinful flesh is being killed. Mortification of the flesh. Life-changing repentance is what Luther's talking about. A doing away with the sinful actions of the flesh. If that's not there, then repentance is false. That's a good litmus test. If someone's truly apologetic of their wrongdoing, they will hate it and they will strive not to do it again. But if there is a sorry and that action continues to go on with no hatred of it, then they're just sorry that they got caught. They just want deliverance from the bad stuff in their life, but not deliverance from the sin that caused the bad stuff in their life. Repentance that shows itself to be true is a repentance that shuns evil. So let's go about 75 years ago. There's a gentleman named Dr. Harry Ironside. Dr. Harry Ironside. He said this in 1937 in his book entitled, Except You Repent. He said this. Now this is 75 years ago. And he was dealing with this. The doctrine of repentance is the missing note in many otherwise orthodox and fundamentally sound circles today. He said that 75 years ago, he would have a fit in our day then, wouldn't he? 75 years ago, roughly, he said this. The doctrine of repentance is the missing note in many otherwise orthodox and fundamentally sound circles today. So he said in the orthodox and fundamentally sound circles that I run in, what I'm seeing is the doctrine of repentance is missing. Do you know what that means? Is he was seeing a cheap grace being peddled in his day. So it's nothing new that repentance is often left out of the true gospel presentation. But if there's no hatred of sin, why do you want a savior from your sin? If you just want heaven, no disease, something like an eternal golf course, and being reunited with people that you love, that you miss so much, if that's all you're looking forward to and that's all you really want heaven for, then you're probably not going there. Because people that are going there are people that know, number one, they don't deserve to be there. And they know that even if none of that other stuff was there, Jesus is there. And that's what's gonna make heaven, heaven, is Jesus is there. I'm here to tell you right now, if I got to heaven and there was no Jesus, I would say, excuse me, angel, I think we must have stopped at the rest area. Let's keep going because Jesus isn't here. I don't want this. This is not the final destination. This is nice and all, but I'm here for Jesus because he's the one that got me into heaven in the first place. And all I want to do is fall at his feet. That's all I want to do. And apparently I'm getting a crown not really worthy of it, so I want to lay it at his feet. That's all I'm here for is that man. And if he's not here, I don't want to be here either. 
There's an old country song. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. And I always think when I hear that song, don't worry, you won't be there. Hank Williams Jr., I believe, right? If heaven doesn't have Jesus, I don't want to go. The understanding of true repentance is often lacking and often under attack. You know why the true understanding of repentance is often under attack? Because repentance makes you feel bad. And we do everything to avoid feeling bad, don't we? Repentance says you're guilty. It's your fault. Repent. Turn away from your wrongdoing and turn to Jesus. That's what repentance says, and that's why it's lacking. We don't like to hear it's our fault. We don't like to hear we're bad. But we are, and we have done wrong. We have spit in the face of the Almighty with our sins. We have gone after other gods, though maybe not gods of silver or gold. We've gone after other things that are not God, and that's sinful. Listen to this. Man wants the benefits of the Lord without the debasement of the flesh. Man wants the benefits of the Lord without the debasement of the flesh. And that's just true. But we don't get the Lord without the debasement of the flesh, without putting away our sin. So what does real repentance look like? Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Let's look at that. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Look at the verbs there. Look at the action words in that verse. Seek, call, forsake, return. This is what repentance looks like. Seeking the Lord. Calling upon his name while he's near. Saying, Lord, I want you, and I'm calling out to you now, and I want to forsake my wicked ways and my wicked thoughts. They're wick- I'm acknowledging that they're wicked and that they're unrighteous. How do I know that? Because that's what your word says. And I'm acknowledging that I believe your word over my own wrong, selfful, sinful, selfish, sinful opinions. My opinions don't matter. What matters is your truth, and I'm submitting to it, and I'm sorry and I return to you. Because that's what repentance is. We've all seen this and heard this a hundred times, but it's a turning away from something towards something else. It's a turning away from our sin toward the one true God. This is how we'll know that our repentance is real. It'll have those things about it. Okay? It'll be cut right. It'll have the right colors. It'll have the right texture. When you hold it up, it'll have the watermark. When repentance is real, it'll have a seeking, a calling, a forsaking, and a returning. All that will be true about it. And the Lord will look at it and say, that's real. That's real. That has value. It has worth, unlike the bill that I thought had worth. Originally, it seemed like it had worth. And then under examination, I realized it's not cut right. It doesn't have the right color, nor the right texture, 
nor the watermark. It's false. Seeking, calling, forsaking, and returning will all be true. Remember, John the Baptist talked about real repentance. He said in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? It means this. Prove by the way that you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Prove by the way you live that you've repented and turned from your sins to God. There's no salvation apart from repentance. Listen to what John MacArthur said. Let me find the quote. Forgive me. I thought it was on that page. It's not, and I'm one-handed today holding this microphone. He says this, It's impossible to talk about turning to the Lord without talking about turning away from iniquity and wickedness. He says, It's impossible to talk about turning to the Lord without talking about turning away from iniquity and wickedness. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 13.3, and he said it again in the exact same sentence in 13.5, just two verses later. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what happens to the people of Israel here in this text? Verse 16, they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now we see God's heart turning to them. Now we see their misery is bothering him. Why? Because they've turned back to him. Not in perfection, unfortunately, because we're going to see in the very next verses, it ends by them basically, a war is coming upon them now. They're rallying to fight. And instead of saying, Lord, please help us. Lord, will you please deliver us today? They say this, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? Unfortunately, they're still babies in the faith if they are truly turning to him at all, which I think that they are at this point. Their discipline has been long and hard enough and God sees their hearts now for sure because he's going to help them. But even then they say, who's the man that's going to save us? They're not yet turning as they ought to to the Lord. I'll say this. Let this encourage you, though. Repentance has to be real. But what follows repentance still won't be perfect. Now, don't take encouragement from that. If you think you've been in the faith for, let's say, 50 years, but you believe you repented 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and you're still not quite serious about this God stuff. Don't find encouragement then. Find encouragement from this new Christian or struggling Christian. Repentance can be real. And then your obedience after that not be in perfection, but in direction, as I've said so many times. Draw encouragement from that. That Jesus Christ... Sometimes all we can do, sometimes all we can do, if we can't run in his direction or even walk or even crawl, sometimes all we can do in, is just fall in his general direction. And he's there for us. Father, we're grateful for the fact that 
You've granted repentance, Lord, to many of us. Lord, I pray that you would be granting it to all of us. Father, I pray that you would please cause and help and make our repentance to be real. A real repentance showing itself in the shunning of evil. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ, of course, paid for our salvation through his precious blood. And I pray that, of course, we'd be trusting in him alone to save us. And it's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.